This week's episode is brought to you by the GG button. Hit that GG button to call out a good game or to troll your friends. Order yours today at ggbutton.com and use our coupon code 1PVS2P at checkout to save 10% off your order. Again, go to ggbutton.com, use coupon code 1PVS2P at checkout to save 10%. Thanks to our friends at the GG Button for supporting our podcast, and thanks to you, the listener, for supporting us. The Tokyo Game Show reveals new games coming to North America, Valve changes its Steam review policy to bury possible abuse, and a lost Warcraft adventure game from the late 90s gets uncovered. All that plus this week's new game releases, announcements, and more. It's Friday, September 16th, 2016, and you're listening to the 1P vs. 2P podcast. I'm Taylor Ray. I'm Ryan Ray. And let's start off with... As usual, our top stories from this past week in gaming. Starting off with the Tokyo Game Show 2016 TGS. A lot of news and previews from Japan's annual Giant Gaming Expo. Uh, Typically, this show shows off a lot of games exclusive to the Japanese market by... Sony by a Nintendo, sometimes Microsoft. Uh, they feature a lot of smaller developers, smaller publishers as well, but we're going to cover some of the major announcements, some of the, the new games uh, we saw that were interesting to our audience, those of us here in North America. Um, so let's start off with the games that are confirmed coming out here uh, sometime within the next couple of years. So starting off with Digimon World Next Order coming to PS4 next year. Ryan, what do you know about that? Right, so this is a uh, Western version of a game that's already out in Japan, uh, coming to PS4, and they just announced uh, for the Vita, um, only a physical uh, version for the PS4. Uh, Digital versions will be available for the PS4 and Vita versions of the game. Uh, This is uh, unlike that Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth game that came out uh, earlier this year. Uh, This will also be an RPG, but this... Um, seems to be a little bit more active combat, more like the uh, Digimon World games. You travel around with uh, two Digimon. Uh, early previews of this game have said that there are tons and tons of Digivolutions, um, at least 200 Digimon that you can evolve into in this game. And uh, it seems like there'll be some uh, complicated uh, stats and uh, ways to raise your Digimon to uh, get them to get into more powerful forms. Uh, some people have even said, compared it to, uh, you're going to need like Excel spreadsheets to uh, make sure that they meet all the certain parameters. So I'm looking forward to it. I super love the Digimon series. Um, I did really like that Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth game. That was kind of a more traditional dungeon crawler, uh, Persona-ish type style game. And uh, I'm just excited there are more Digimon games. It seems like Pokemon really ate Digimon's lunch back in the day, but uh, all the real cool kids did like Digimon back in the day. So It's sort of neat to see that Digimon is still alive and well and that there have been recent games uh, that have come out uh, and are continuing to come out because uh, the video games have been so far uh, pretty, pretty good, um, even if they aren't just pure uh, monster catching RPGs. Uh, next, we have Neo, which I'm sure, Ryan, you're much more excited about this game than I am, coming to PS4 February of next year. This was shown off a little bit at E3. This is being called like a sort of Japanese samurai style uh, version of Dark Souls. Right, and there was actually a early demo of this game that you could get a while back on PS Plus. Uh, it, it it was very Dark Souls like. It has a very deliberate combat. 
um, you know, uh, weapons that you pick up from enemies. Uh, the difficulty was uh, pretty pretty hard. Um, the enemies will kind of kill you very quickly. And uh, had that respawn just like Dark Souls. And basically any way you could make a game like Dark Souls, but way more Japanese, you could. They did take some feedback uh, from the the demo before and are changing some of the mechanics of the game a little bit. So I'm eager to see how that checks out. Dark Souls, of course, very popular here in the West. There was actually just some news on that that came out that over the lifetime of the series, the Dark Souls games have sold about just over 5 million copies, which is uh, pretty good for, you know, something that's relatively new, a uh, new concept in games and uh, seemingly a, ga- a game series that everybody wants to uh, copy. I'm I'm super interested in Neo. Uh, I hope they uh, iron out some of the issues that they had with the early uh, version of that game. And uh, looking forward to it coming out next year. Next, we have Koei Tecmo announcing a new Warriors game. Imagine that, a new Warriors game by Koei Tecmo. One comes out every single year. Uh, but this one is a major crossover between uh, the Dynasty Warriors franchise, Ninja Gaiden, Tokaiden, and Atelier. Uh, or Atelier, not sure how you pronounce it. But anyway, this game is called Musao Stars. Uh, This is going to be released sometime in 2017 for PS4 and Vita. So in the teaser trailer, they showed off Ryu Hayabusa, the main protagonist from the Ninja Gaiden series, uh, Sophie from Atelier. Um, Also, I forgot to mention Dead or Alive. So if you're a fan of that uh, fighting game franchise, uh, Kasumi was also um, shown off. And also, I should say, Samurai Warriors also included in this crossover. So you have Chinese and Japanese heroes from Dynasty Warriors and Samurai Warriors all coming together in a new Warrior-style game. It seems like we get a new Dynasty Warrior-style game every six months. You can set your watch to it. I think unlike other Dynasty Warriors games that I'm super interested in, uh, you know, maybe uh, the mainline series, Warriors Orochi, or even the spinoff that they've done with... uh, Hyrule Warriors and uh, with Dragon Quest, I'm not as interested in this game because uh, I'm just not as connected to the characters. I think uh, of those game series that you mentioned, the only one I really like is Ninja Gaiden. Um, I have Tokiden, but I've never played it. That's kind of like a Japanese style Monster Hunter game. And uh, actually, is kind of a, let's say, niche uh, JRPG um, that has appeared on the Vita. And so for all their properties to kind of cross over, uh, to make a Dynasty Warriors game. Like, I'm not surprised that they're doing it. Uh, that game engine gets reused a lot, um, sometimes in interesting ways. But I'm this is the one that I'm really not sure about. I'm just curious to see it uh, perform on Vita. I haven't played any Warrior-style games on Vita, but knowing that engine, how many characters, uh, how much the environments load up all at the same time uh, on one screen, how it, I'd like to see how it performs uh, on the Vita. Is it going to be a uh, super choppy with uh, horrible frame rates? Uh, I, you know that that's what I would expect, just because of how much is going on on screen with just you know anywhere from like fifty to hundred enemies at any given point on the battlefield. I'd like to see that because I'd love to play a Warriors game on the go, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. But it's definitely confirmed uh, for North American release. The rest of these from TGS that were shown off are not confirmed for North America. It's possible they will get later announced for here, but for now, they're Japan only, including Naruto Ultimate Ninja getting its final expansion. If you're a fan of that fighting uh, franchise, All good things must come to an end. It's called Road to Boruto. will release for PS4, Xbox One, uh, and PC in February of next year. Again, not confirmed quite yet for North America, as far as we can tell. 
Uh, next, we have Bandai Namco celebrating the 15th anniversary of Gundam with the new game Gundam Versus. Uh, it's a new PlayStation 4 game, a new fighting mecha game. And then last but not least, we have Earth Defense Force 5 hitting Japan sometime next year. If you're a fan of that niche bug warfare uh, <laughs> uh, game, that's the best way I could describe it. Also, you know, aliens just descending upon you. We were talking about the Warrior series earlier, and I would say this is like the B-movie version of those style of games because you're fighting, like you know, just swarms and swarms of aliens or bugs, insects in, in the series. And it seems to be getting more and more and more popular, especially since they've been porting it over here uh, in the West as well. I played the original one in the series, but now we're up to Earth Defense Force 5. So if you're a fan, I, I suppose you should check it out. Hopefully it will come out here. Yeah, I would also say uh, of those three, the one I'm most, most interested in is Gundam Versus. Um, so that remember when I uh, during the podcast episode where we talked about uh, what I saw in Japan. So that was uh, the Gundam arcade game that I saw being played. It kind of looked like virtual on but Gundams, uh, which has me super excited. I'm not a big fan of the Gundam series, but I do like virtual on quite a bit. And uh, I've been hankering for a game like that for quite some time. And uh, if Bandai Namco does that right. Uh, that could be really, really cool. There have been Gundam games that have come to the West. There was that one recently on PS4, I would say, earlier this year that was a little bit uh, more Dynasty Warriors-like. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm super interested uh, if Gundam Versus does come out here in the West. Uh, also, I should uh, clarify, EDF5, again, not announced, confirmed for North America, but for Japan, coming out uh, for PS4 in 2017 next year. Uh, all right, let's move on to our next story, which is Steam changing its review score policy to ward off sort of playing the system. Let's talk about this. So if you've logged into Steam lately, you might have noticed that uh, if you're looking at the store page, there are there's a customer review section that you've always seen, right? Um, but it looks slightly different starting from earlier this week, and that's because the system's changed. Valve announced in a post earlier this week that... The tweaks they've been making are to make actual legitimate review scores much, much more visible. So uh, let's explain what that means. So Valve has introduced several filters to the reviews tab. So one that limits uh, just customer write-ups to your native language. And then there's this other one that's always been there that lets you choose between game reviews by Steam purchasers. Those are customers who bought directly from Steam um, through the store pages key activators or both now by default right now what you see is reviews by steam purchasers only so why is this a big deal the biggest change here is that review scores now exclude ratings and reviews based on keys entirely so if you're talking about people buying legitimate keys from something like you know, humble bundle, but then more illegitimate sources like gray market re uh, key resellers. Anytime those games are activated using those keys and a customer re reviews that game, those by default are not going to be visible. So what's the big deal here, Ryan? Explain why there's a sort of a mini controversy here. Right. So a lot of developers uh, give out keys uh, to uh, Kickstarter backers if there's been a Kickstarter campaign um, in, in cases where there's um, pre-released uh, versions of the games going out to reviewers so you can get early copies of the game so that the reviews can come out on time. They also hand out keys for that. 
And uh, this seems to be a way for Valve to kind of clamp down on kind of the illegal selling of keys that go back and forth. Um, you know, sites like G2A uh, heavily deal in this kind of thing, taking advantage of um, current current differences in currency prices to get out games uh, game keys to uh, people for cheaper than they normally would retail for. And uh, this seems to be Valve clamping it down on that. I would also say that this is probably a product of the... Uh, a side effect, actually, of the uh, Counter-Strike Go gambling scandal. Um, Valve is trying to clamp down on their system quite a bit. And uh, when Valve does this kind of thing to Steam, uh, they always say, they always do things in this libertarian-style way of, oh, we'll let the market decide. And uh, what's been kind of frustrating for uh, Valve for a long time is that, you know, all these gray market uh, reviewers are getting in and, um, you know, let's say a game... Uh, you know, releases poorly and there aren't uh, optimizations done, uh, you know, people can kind of get in there and really trash on the user reviews. And they're also trying to cut out that end of it where people are just trashing a game because they can. Um, they're, they're trying to make the system more legitimate from the surface um, so that only people who really truly buy the game from Steam uh, who can really have an honest opinion. Of course, they're not coming out and saying that, but by by surfacing those reviews first, they're kind of more or less endorsing that kind of approach to reviews. And a few developers that we've seen on Twitter have really kind of sounded off um, uh, again, both for and against this policy. Let's say you receive a, a game for free. Let's say you're a prominent YouTuber or Twitch streamer. You receive a game from a developer or publisher, wherever, whatever the source is, um, activated by a key. And now on Steam, you actually do see a label saying... You know, the key was provided, you know, by the developer or publisher. Steam already knows that on the back end because of, you know, what the key is. They already know that, oh, this was a key that we, we've given to them so that they can give out these sort of review copies. So you know that going into it. But the idea is a lot of these smaller developers are complaining that, well, there goes, you know, 90% of my reviews that I've handed out. I don't get a lot of sales normally. And now the few that were just outright bought from the Steam store are the only ones displaying right now by default. And that may be a good thing, but more or less, it seems to be more of a negative thing for a lot of these um, smaller developers. Because anytime you see anything below a positive overall average rating you know if you see something like mixed reviews or mostly negative things like that it's an immediate turnoff i don't know about you ryan it is to me if i look at a game that i'm not familiar with at all and i see that i'm like ah forget it this game is just not worth my time i'm not look gonna look uh, into it anymore and i know a lot of other steam customers must feel that way so that's why this is a weird situation uh, let's explain valve's point of view they said in their blog post that Quote, the review score has also become a point of fixation for many developers to the point where some developers are willing to employ deceptive tactics to generate a more positive review score. So that's the other, uh, you know, side of things. You know, they're actually giving away free copies to encourage uh, people to and not and not and I'm not saying this to say that all developers do this, but there are developers out there that are saying, hey, uh, in exchange for a free game, can you write us a positive review? Um so maybe Valve isn't suggesting that they're eliminating planet reviews completely, but the company said that filtering out those game reviews based on Steam keys of any kind, you know, could keep it from influencing those people who aren't in the know, right? The average buyer up on Steam. 
To be to be honest with you, Taylor, uh, the user reviews section of uh, Steam doesn't really uh, impact my decision one way or the other. Uh, for one thing, I think you and I host a gaming podcast, and I think you and I are more in the know generally uh, about whether a PC version of a game is good or not, or whether a game is good or not. Generally speaking, if you can, if you kind of Google the the name of the game online. Um, you can kind of see early impressions. Usually there's lots of information, usually a gameplay trailer. Um, usually at the point that you're looking at uh, when it's available on Steam, there's already gameplay footage from people who are actually legitimately playing the game who don't have any uh, imp- early impressions. Um, and you can kind of see there's a lot of information about games out there right now. And uh, to me, <laughs> the the price of the game on Steam actually influences my decision more, more so than uh, the review, which can be... Uh, kind of uh, influence one way or the other, and um, I think I think for a lot of people it kind of works a lot like Amazon reviews, right? Like you see uh, on a product page something doesn't have uh, you know more than four stars, and you're like, well, something must be wrong here. Uh, on Steam, the version of that is well, if something has mixed reviews or it's anything that's below positive, uh, so their scale is very positive, positive, mixed, negative, or very negative. Uh, you know, if there's anything below positive, something must be up. Maybe there, there's, uh, the game is horribly broken. Uh, maybe the, uh, it's a case like No Man's Sky where the game might be, uh, have kind of different set of expectations set around it. And for me, and it's just angry internet people sounding off. Right. For me, the, the controversy around review scores has always been super, like, it's the worst kind of conversation when we bring up video games. And uh, to be honest with you, we we do review scores only because that's the way it's worked for so... And I think it's the way it's worked for so long. And, you know, there people do need some kind of metric to kind of look quickly at a review and say, okay, is this good or bad? Yes or no. Um, but th- I, this is a side effect of people looking at review scores and saying okay, well, I guess this really isn't worth my time. There are plenty of two-star, three-star, mixed-review games, positive-review, negative-reviewed games on Steam that I still enjoy a a lot of the time. And um, I think Valve trying to change the way their system works uh, I think is a good thing. You know, Valve actually working on Steam and making improvements on it says to me that they're really paying attention to the marketplace in a way that, like, Apple doesn't really uh, police their App Store at all. Um, but at the same time, it also changes the way that games are marketed for developers. And for a lot of smaller publishers, that's really going to hurt their bottom line. And Valve went so far as to give hard evidence saying, quote, an analysis of games across Steam shows that at least 160 titles have a substantially greater percentage of positive reviews by users that activated the product with the CD key compared to customers that purchased the game directly on Steam without and they did not give any names of any specific offenders. And then they continued on to say, quote, there are, of course, legitimate reasons why this would be true for a game. But in many cases, the abuse is clear and obvious, such as duplicated and or generated reviews in large batches or reviews from accounts linked to the developer, end quote. So, yes, there's a lot of shenanigans going on with Steam uh, ratings, reviews, um, and how they aggregate toward the, the, the top of their store page uh, so they can generate more sales. But you know, it, it, it's sort of a mixed bag here. It's sort of a wait and see approach at this point to see if this default view of games that are only being purchased by people buying directly on Steam can be trustworthy sources for reviews. And 
I agree with you in the sense that reviews are really sort of the semantic thing, right? It's a dumb way to gauge uh, a game's quality. But for a lot of people, they rely on them uh, for recommendations on buying their games. People on fixed incomes, they don't want to waste their time and money um, spending on a game that they know other people have said uh, that they're bad. And, you know, it's a very subjective thing, but that's just the way the world works, uh, especially in this industry. All right, let's move on to our last story, uh, a very interesting one, uh, one that's uh, still still a developing story. Ubisoft is sort of facing a huge threat. Ubisoft, which has been around for about 30 years, they're having this upcoming annual general shareholders meeting. Um, they're going to do standard business things like elect a board of directors. Um, but here's the, the kicker here. They could possibly open the door for a very hostile takeover by Vivendi, a company sort of infamous in the gaming industry um, for sort of ruining some smaller developers. Vivendi, just to give some background, has been sniffing around Ubisoft for much of this year. Uh, just this summer, Vivendi managed to wrest Gameloft um, from a very prominent uh, investing family, the Guillemots, uh, which founded Ubisoft in 1986. Okay, So as this September shareholder meeting comes up, Ubisoft is trying to, you know, convince other investors to, you know, hang on to their shares, not sell them off to Vivendi, because what happens when you're majority shareholder of a certain company? Now you own it, right? Ryan, why is this such a big deal? Uh, this is a big deal because uh, Vivendi has been kind of painted as this uh, like snidely whiplash type uh, villain uh, when <laughs> when it owns video game companies. Gameloft isn't such a, a big, big deal because uh, Gameloft is a mobile developer. And for the most part, uh, I can't name a single game in their catalog that I would think classify as like really outstanding. Uh, however, Ubisoft has been a, an independent game publisher and developer for a long time. They take a lot of chances on games. They make a lot of um, interesting experiments. Uh, some of them really good, some of them really bad, but um, you could always say really interesting. Uh, you know, they, they've done The Crew. Uh, that was that uh, car racing game that was open world. They've done uh, Grow Home, which was kind of, a, a, you know, a crawling up simulator. Uh, they do the Assassin's Creed games. They've done the Splinter Cell games. And <clears throat> if Vivendi were to own Ubisoft, there's not really a guarantee that those game franchises would continue under under Vivendi. Vivendi, uh, in the past, has owned Activision Blizzard. And uh, the, <laughs> that when Vivendi owned Activision Blizzard, that was probably the worst output that Activision ever did under that company. There were a lot of um, financial directives to make games uh, quickly without a lot of development time um, to get out the door. And didn't, they didn't take the time to make the games actually high quality. Right, because Vivendi was the principal shareholder in Activision Blizzard before selling it off in 2013. Really interesting history there. Right, and uh, actually Activision Blizzard hated being owned by Vivendi so much that they actually uh, saved up their money and both companies uh, bought out Vivendi so that they could be independent once more. And now you you know Activision Blizzard 
uh, for a lot more successes than they they would have probably if they had stayed under the Vivendi flagship. So, uh, you know, this Ubisoft news comes as Ubisoft is trying to uh, increase interest in their brand. They've uh, a lot of Ubisoft employees, which span the globe. Uh, the If you ever watch the credit sequences of any Assassin's Creed game, it goes on for five hours. <laughs> um, but basically... Uh, you know, they, they have launched this website. They uh, showed a YouTube video earlier this week um, saying, declaring why they, they love being independent, why they like being a creative force in this industry. And it, it seems to be the Guillemot brothers uh, who, who do own the company currently. Um, they want to really stake their claim and say, hey, please don't sell to Vivendi because otherwise our games are really just going to be... Um, a part of gaming history and not part of gaming's future. And <clears throat> I think that would be really such a shame because Ubisoft does some really cool stuff. They have some really cool stuff in the pipes. Um, there was that uh, sports game that is coming out that uh, looked very interesting from the E3 footage. Um, there's a, an Assassin's Creed game that they skipped this year. What about Watch Dogs 2? Watch Dogs 2 is coming later this year. Um, you know, uh, they also own the Trials people, uh, the Red Red Links. So Ubisoft yeah, has Far Cry a, as well. Far Cry. Uh, Ubisoft has a lot of games in its portfolio. And uh, if it's taken over by Vivendi, that could be really bad news for uh, games that are under its flag. The website that you mentioned created by the employees of Ubisoft is called WeLoveUbisoft.com. Yeah, and it's full of this whole PR, this campaign to sort of uh, maintain their voting rights for the company uh, and to avoid a very hostile takeover by Vivendi. I imagine... You know, in business, any hostile takeover by a parent company, it probably doesn't end well. You have a lot of employees, key employees who've worked on uh, a lot of projects um, for the smaller company that's being bought out, end up leaving because all of a sudden they don't like new bosses, they don't like new management, projects change, directives change, things of that nature. So hostile takeovers, you know, might seem to make sense in the business world, but in the creative world it gets very, very, very messy. So um, that's why it's potentially huge news if this ends up happening. So we'll stay tuned, report back on what ends up happening later this month if Ubisoft does get bought out. Uh, let's move on to our new video game releases for this week. I love new releases. First is a collection of some remastered classics. Bioshock, the collection for PC, PS4, and Xbox One. I'm a huge fan of Bioshock. I loved 1 and 2, Infinite, gorgeous. I still remember every moment of those. The The thing that makes this collection very compelling is that Ken Levine, the, the main producer for uh, the series, uh, actually includes some voice director commentary for Bioshock 1 in here, as well as obviously some remastered graphics in here. So improved lighting, shading. Th these games, I felt, still hold up on their own, but they look even better. Right. Curiously, uh, as part of this release, um, Ken Levine did an interview with Glixel, which is the new uh, Rolling Stone uh, gaming section. And uh, he made some really unfortunate comments about um, about Bioshock 1 and its uh, inspiration. He basically compared it to the Holocaust, uh, which was uh, not not a great comparison to make. But in any case, um, besides his his comments, uh, whether you you view them positively or negatively, I agree with you that 
Uh, the original Bioshock is a, certainly a standout game of that generation. Uh, that opening sequence where you first go underneath underneath the sea and you explore the world of Rapture is like one of the more like memorable images from from video games. Uh, the the twist, uh, the would you kindly twist, it stands out as as like one of the the big story moments. Um, Bioshock Two was kind of done by a different developer. Um, but also a very interesting game where you play as a big daddy, um, and you kind of explore rapture from a different perspective. And then of course, the more recent Bioshock Infinite, uh, which has you exploring the worlds of Columbia and, uh, is kind of a, a different take, uh, on the Bioshock universe. Um, I think also an interesting game, uh, worth playing. Of course, if you own the PC versions of, uh, these games already, uh, you're getting these remasters for free. So there's no reason not to check them out. Um, you know, to have these uh, games uh, upgraded to 1080p and 60 frames a second, uh, I say is uh, is a great justice because uh, these games already have a very distinctive art style and a, a lot of just like really v- very memorable uh, the screenshots and uh, gameplay moments. So uh, I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, if you're playing on the PS4 and Xbox One versions, by the way, uh, for some reason, uh, 2K isn't going to let you stream uh, th- this game. Uh, they haven't really gotten into exactly why that is. Maybe they're worried about story spoilers. But um, in any case, uh, do check out Bioshock the Collection out this week. Yes, it's retailing for $60, which is a lot, but for three full games, and if you never checked them out before, now's a perfect time to jump in. Normally, I'm not a huge fan of remasters, but for the Bioshock series, $60, that's still a great, great value. You'll get a lot of hours of entertainment out of all three of those games. Very story-rich, excellent, excellent first-person shooters. Uh, Next, we have Dead Rising Triple Pack. Another remaster collection for PC, PS4, and Xbox One. It's a re-release of the original Dead Rising on Xbox 360, then Dead Rising 2, then Dead Rising 2 Off the Record, which the the difference between 2 and 2 Off the Record was uh, just a difference in protagonist and some a few changes here and there, but for the most part, we're the, the same game. Another caveat to this bundle um, is that it does not include that... Um, game that was downloadable only dead rising Two case zero or dead rising Two case west both uh independent standalone games but the hd releases of all of these three dupe up of the graphics to 1080p 60 frames per second um you know and and obviously you're gonna see a ton of improvement there because <laughs> again just another throwback to the dynasty franchise dynasty warriors franchise you you got a ton of stuff happening on screen a ton of zombies um yeah, what do you think about this, Ryan? I think this is a really interesting re-release. Uh, of course, this also marks the first time that the original Dead Rising game is coming to the PC. And um, I think it's a really interesting contrast to see where zombie games have have come from uh, if you play Dead Rising. Uh, Dead Rising 1 is this interesting, like, uh, like Majora's Mask scenario where basically the timeline is very tight. Uh, certain You won't... Uh, finish certain side quests or objectives. Uh, if you don't get to certain points in time in the story, you can actually fail out. The game was really notoriously difficult when it first came out on 360. On top of it, this was also a game where if you did not have an HD TV, uh, <laughs> this was kind of like an early era 360 game. The the font on that game was super tiny, and um, 
I remember playing that game and being really frustrated by it. I did enjoy it. It was kind of a different style game. And then Dead Rising 2 kind of, um, it has a mode where it does have the uh, timed parts of that game, but it did away with some of those mechanics and it made it much more an accessible series for a lot of people. And they also, of course, introduced, um, you know, custom weapons and, and, uh, you know, the the series would go on to uh, spawn this kind of like it can't be uh, interesting take on the zombie thing. It, it's it's kind of like a, a goofy take on like what Resident Evil has done for a long time. And, uh, I, you know, they're really fun games regardless. The, the gameplay is really fun. The uh, bosses that you fight, the psychos are really, really interesting. Um, so I, I I'm really excited to check this out. I think this is pri- trying to prime the pump for uh, Dead Rising 4, which is coming out uh, this Christmas. So, And they've always had really awesome environments. Dead Rising took place entirely in one mall. Dead Rising 2 and Dead Rising 2 off the record taking place also in a mall, but other environments too, like a mini theme park, a casino as well. Uh, and that's where I jumped into the series. I actually only played Dead Rising 2 uh, off the record. I absolutely loved it. There's a bunch of wacky weapons you can use to combat zombies. You know, you could push... Uh, uh, shopping carts you could even mod weapons together like you know you could add, i think it was like a chainsaw in a bucket and you put it on top of a, a zombie's head and it just destroys their head immediately it's an insta kill it was just really 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 fun wacky very campy I, and at times very very difficult given the time constraints you had um you know it's very difficult to beat the game in one playthrough but the game rewards you to play the game over and over and over again um a lot of it is memorizing the patterns and being most efficient in um how you want to complete the story still nonetheless very 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 fun again another situation is if you've never played any dead rising games great place to start this off at um pc ps4 xbox one is available on all three next pac-man championship edition two Again, for PC, PS4, and Xbox One, it's the sequel to Pac-Man Championship Edition DX. There's some new mechanics here, um, including, for one, running into a ghost won't kill Pac-Man. That sounds like sacrilege, right? Um, You have to run into a ghost three times before it gets angry and kills you. So it's all about a major difference here. This game... Is all about making ghost trains so that when you eat the power pellet, which now spawns like fruit did in the original Pac-Man, instead of being placed at certain set points in the maze, you can eat the chain of ghosts in a quick cutscene you actually can't control. So very, very weird, um, very different from Pac-Man Championship Edition DX. Right. And uh, earlier reviews of this game have also said that it doesn't seem to have the killer soundtrack that Pac-Man Championship Edition DX had, which was one of the game's major selling points. If you remember, that <laughs> title screen main menu music was an incredible song to, to thump in your ears. Yeah, and even the stage music yeah, as you're playing too. Awesome, awesome music. And uh, this is one of those things that I hear and I like I can't believe it. I was so excited for this game to come out, a sequel to one of the best uh, XBLA games that came out a while ago. And uh, I can't believe that it's not it's there seem to be leaning into the things that uh, weren't weren't that great about that. Some of the holes that faults in the Pac-Man Championship Edition DX and uh, they're leaning into the things that people didn't really like so much. Um, there also seem to be boss fights in this game, which a Pac-Man game with boss fights is kind of a weird concept to wrap your mind around. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe check it out on a sale. <laughs> the previews from this game uh, do not have me excited to check it out. Yeah, well, these new Pac-Man games have always been sort of uh, colorful 
and very funky, uh, interesting. And I'm not quite sure to make uh, what these new mechanics are, but, you know, Championship Edition DX, the last game was phenomenal. It's even really, really good on smartphones, too, and it's very cheap. And the touch controls work surprisingly well. Uh, I've heard some, you know, performance issues about this version, too, so maybe wait a little bit for this one. I agree with you. Wait for a sale for Championship Edition 2. Uh, let's talk about ReCore. Um, this used to be an Xbox One exclusive, but now it's available on Xbox One and PC. This game, um, it's interesting because it's a brand new game retailing for $40 instead of $60. It's the latest concept game, concept being known as KG Inafune's uh, latest joint, uh, KG Inafune of Mega Man fame. Also, not so famous for his Mighty Number no. Nine recent release. Um, but what's the early reviews and previews for Recore for right now really highlight a lot of technical issues and bugs with the game. But essentially, what this is is um, this third-person action platformer with sort of Mega Man X-style mechanics, where you can double jump and uh, air dash as well but the game centers around like a robot companion uh, mechanics where you can uh, upgrade and uh, recruit new sort of mechanical animals uh, to help you progress through uh, certain levels and certain dungeons within the game right and the game seems to be marred a lot by uh, technical issues and bugs uh, everything from uh, checkpoints that spawn you in places that just kill you straight away um and, uh, you know, lots of like frame hitching, load times that uh, are exceeding like two and a half minutes. Uh, there was uh, when the game came out, there was this uh, video from a Twitter user that basically showed this in action. It totally crazy uh, that that is something we have not seen since like the PSP. Uh, and also, uh, you know, they probably will uh, eventually be this being a first party Microsoft game. They will probably get around to patching that stuff. But Setting that stuff aside, this game also seems to have a Wind Waker style problem in the end game of doing a large world spanning fetch quest right before you get to the final dungeon. And that is a killer for me. <laughs> that does not make me want to pick up this game. I I liked Win the original release of Wind Waker on the GameCube quite a bit, but a lot of people did not finish that game because it had this really like BS quest to yeah you had to like sail around the world to, before you got to the final dungeon to fight ganon and <laughs> if recore has that same problem i'm not interested in picking up this game i don't want to have to do like pick up 90 cores or whatever it is before i get to the final part of the game that is ridiculous um it, it reads like the bad trappings of like a ps2 game uh, that's that's awful don't you think a new game that's being released as a physical copy on consoles uh, for $40 as opposed to the standard $60. That screams budget title to you, right? But it, it, it seems like they might have been able to price this new game at a 60 at $60 if they had worked out a lot of these kinks, if they had a few uh, more weeks, maybe a few more months to, to fine-tune a lot of these issues, don't you think? Well, now I want to I want to take a little bit of issue with that because there have been some very fine games that have been available forty dollars. Uh, Banjo Kazooie: Nuts and Bolts, for example, was uh, available for forty dollars right from the start, and that was a fantastic, arguably the best Banjo Kazooie game. Um, you know, Viva Pinata Two, that was also excellent, also forty dollars. You might have some issue with that, but uh, you know, a game's price point uh, to me says that. Um, you know, it, it could be a new IP. Um, maybe Microsoft saw the game 
uh, coming. And so like, oh, well, it has some issues. We're going to kind of take a chance on it. Maybe if we uh, value price it a little bit, maybe that'll get a few more people through the door. Um, it, it really speaks to uh, maybe they don't have as much faith in the project um, as they did when it first started, uh, which is too bad because I think ReCore has a really promising concept. Uh, it also seems to have some really uh, neat combat mechanics. And uh, from what I've heard, um, some neat story elements um, that are based in audio logs. But um, yeah, I you know this is just the latest in uh, concept, really disappointing fans. Um, earlier this summer, Mighty Number no. 9 was a huge disappointment for people who were looking for a Mega Man style game. Uh, yeah, this has been a really bad like production schedule for concept. And I, to be honest, if they keep putting games out like this, I don't know how long they're going to continue to exist as a company. Well said. Let's move on to our new game announcements from this week. Here comes a new challenger. Titanfall is getting a mobile trading card game coming this fall to Android and iOS from mobile developers Nexon and Particle City. It's called Titanfall Frontline. It's a strategy TCG in which massive battles between IMC and Militia, the two uh, major forces against each other in the normal Titanfall game, um, play out in sort of this turn-based fashion. Yes, there are burn cards. Uh, It seems like there will be microtransactions in this game. Um, But sort of an interesting take here. They're doing some interesting things with this IP, especially with the upcoming Titanfall 2 coming out, which early previews for that game seem pretty promising. You know, I really like uh, trading card games, especially on mobile. There was that really cool uh, Assassin's Creed uh, tactical uh, trading card game, which right now I'm uh, blanking on the name, but I played that for quite a bit. Um, I really liked the original Titanfall. It had some neat ideas. Its progression mechanics uh, weren't that great. But, uh, you know, that's that having been said, um, that game did have burn cards, um, which was this kind of like uh, way to uh, put in extra perks before you jumped into your uh, arena combat. Uh, single style. use only. Yeah. Single use only. And to, to spin that into a full on trading card game, uh, trying to uh, play off the success of games like Hearthstone and the upcoming um, Gwent game from The Witcher. Uh, you know, I, I think this is them making a really smart play. I think this is them trying to make Titanfall a bigger deal than it it was. Um, this is coming, uh, pretty close to the release of Titanfall two. Uh, so if you're not interested in the shooter aspect of that game, maybe they'll try and sell you, uh, this, uh, card version of the, the same idea. You've added the second one here, which I, I'm not too familiar with, to be honest, but this is a new game called quote an action RPG. Ryan, explain what this is. Right. So I put this game on this list because it had a really interesting premise. This is an action RPG where you basically uh, serve the god of ignorance and you try to destroy all knowledge. Uh, that's kind of a really cool tagline. You don't expect that to see that for most games. It has a really kind of neat art style. There's a, there's a trailer that we'll uh, post in the show notes. But uh, basically... Uh, the way you play this this game uh, in this RPG, you're uh, basically slaying heretics, you're smashing authors, you're burning books. It, it has a very like surreal, dreamlike quality to it. And, uh, you know, I would say it's probably inspired by um, famous novelists like Kurt Vonnegut and Ray Bradbury. So if you like science fiction style stories, maybe a little bit uh, alternative history, uh I would recommend checking out this game. It looks really neat. It's coming out later this year. We don't have a set release date, but man, it looks really, really cool. The gameplay reminds me a lot of 
now looking at this trailer as you were talking reminds me of bastion a lot it's you know isometric the battles are and and, and you know the fight animations you're you're fighting enemies in these in these environments using melee and um range uh, abilities but yeah it has this sort of dreamlike art style to it and I, I can't quite put my finger on it but looks really 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 cool we'll have to check out when this game is actually confirmed for release. Uh, let's talk about the games we've been playing lately. Ryan, you've got here Star Ocean Integrity and Faithlessness for PS4. I'm very curious what you have to say about it as a longtime Star Ocean fan. I have not checked this one out yet. Uh, before we came on the show, I, <laughs> I told you that the uh, secret subtitle of this game is uh, Star Ocean, I have some bad news for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so uh, I, what I will say uh, positive about the game is that unlike most Star Ocean games, uh, the game gets you right into the middle of things uh, very quickly. In the first five to ten minutes, you are uh, you know what you're doing, you know what the characters are, and you're right into combat. Uh, they intro- they introduce the systems very quickly. Um, it's uh, in the first, I would say, maybe five hours. The game is very action packed. Boom, next story point. Boom, next story point. And I think that's a very positive game. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't like slower paced RPGs, but I'm just saying in, in an environment where some people uh, can't stand how some RPGs start, uh, that this is kind of a, a nice balance between those two ideas. Right, because some JRPGs take like hours to get into like the first battle. There's so much uh, world building and story there. And Star Ocean The Last Hope, the last one in this series, did that. And it was horribly, horribly, horribly slow. It took forever you to, to start getting into the best part of that game, which is the battle system. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the battle system is unfortunately a lot like the last game. Um, it's this active, uh, the Star Ocean games have always been known kind of for their active combat system. Um, a little more successful with Star Ocean, the second story. That was the first game that came out in the West here. Um, and then they did that re- release of the uh, first game on PSP. There was also the PS2 Star Ocean game that was also active style combat. Um, this is kind of like the sister series to the Tales games. Um, so you're kind of running around, you're controlling characters. You control one character at a time. Um, you can switch between characters in the middle of the battle. Um, and it's, it's kind of this, uh, like, you know, circle and X does strong and weak attacks. You can hold down the buttons to perform skills. Um, the skills aren't that interesting. And, um, this game introduces, this game has a large party. Uh, you control, (laughs) typically these games, you control four characters at once. In the case of the PS2 Star Ocean game, it was three. Uh, in this game, you can control seven characters at once, uh, which kind of turns battle into this really like chaos when you have a full party and on top of it there's a character in your party who's basically a a game-long escort mission you can't control her and she's there really just to cast like defensive spells and if she dies it's game over and like that's not super fun also the character is not very interesting uh actually all the characters in this game aren't very interesting they kind of read as very as very like JRPG uh, stereotypes, which I don't I don't mind those kinds of stereotypes sometimes, but this is just like the worst versions of those. And this game just reads to me like Square Enix uh, focused a lot of their money and resources towards Final Fantasy and not towards Star Ocean, this thing that they're trying to save. And uh, frankly, if if the games like Star Ocean, Integrity and Faithlessness continue to come out with the Star Ocean name, 
Uh, I don't think Star Ocean deserves to continue. Uh, I think this game has not transitioned well to the 3D art style. Uh, the games after really the second story haven't been quite as good. Uh, and this game is just like very forgettable. Uh, I, it's really disappointing because I think it's a very really colorful world. I think the idea of a very like space opera RPG is like a, an, an idea from the PS2 era of RPGs that like doesn't really exist anymore. And Star Ocean is kind of like the last thing standing. And um, yeah, this is kind of like at best, I would say a mediocre RPG. So uh, I'd recommend you check out many of the other excellent RPGs that came out this year. Just not Star Ocean. Well, I'm not a Star Ocean apologist, and especially because I haven't played this game. But I have to say, you know, I always found it very refreshing that the the battle system was not turn based. Right. It's real time um, active. You can control multiple characters at any given time. There's always something interesting going on screen. Um, and and from what I saw, the trailers for integrity and faithlessness seem promising, but if it's like, you know, the last hope, what a, what a bummer. Uh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, I I guess I'll pick up this game when it hits 20 bucks, just because I'm so curious about it, but going into it, uh, I, I guess I, I've always had my expectations set really, really high for star ocean with the second story. One of my all time favorite RPGs ever. Um, and then till the end of time, right? That was the other PS2. Uh, that was the the PS2 version, right? Right. Um, was also pretty pretty good, you know. And and, and it's 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 really disappointing how downhill um, Star Ocean has really gotten. Uh, let's move on to Hyperlight Drifter. You've been playing that on PC lately? Yes, I have. And uh, I'd have to say you should play this game straight up. Uh, this game, I'm getting like flashbacks of. Uh, a Link to the Past on Super Nintendo. This game is really, really good. Um, I, I think there are some people comparing it to Dark Souls, which I don't really think is a, a fair comparison. It does have some very active combat uh, based a lot around like dodging um, at the right moments. But I would say that uh, the gameplay is, uh, there's this overworld. Uh, there is no English in this game whatsoever. This game is basically told through a lot of very stylistic art, uh, a lot of symbols, a lot like Fez was. Um, in fact, I would say this game is a perfect marriage between um, the ideas of Fez, but the gameplay of uh, Legend of Zelda: a Link to the Past, that Super Nintendo classic. And uh, the boss battles are like really challenging and really fun. Um, and uh, like the the world is so intriguing. There are some like very memorable screenshots that I can think of. Like the game opens and it's just like beautiful, beautiful, like really artistically done world. And um, I would look out for this game on a lot of game of the year lists. It is. I'm having a fantastic time with it. I'm not even finished with the game. Um, judging by my my gameplay time with it, I probably venture to say it's probably about a 10 hour experience. So it's also not very long. Uh, highly, highly recommended. Speaking of highly recommended, I just beat Uncharted for a Thief's End on PS4 uh, earlier today. Uh, I know it's been a while since it's been released, but I just got around to beating it, and I am super, super impressed. Definitely on my Game of the Year discussion list, okay? As a sort of disclaimer, I did not play Uncharted 1 through 3. So for me, jumping into this game... You know, I didn't have many expectations here, but I was astonished, super, super impressed on how beautiful this game looked. I feel like Uncharted 4 is 
maximizing the PS4's potential before the PS4 Pro was just announced, which we discussed last week. It's just stunning. The best character models I've ever seen, and I didn't think I would say that this soon, so quickly, after the release of Witcher 3 last year, but just incredible the voice acting, uh, as I've heard, has been a hallmark of the franchise between Nolan North uh, as Nathan Drake, the protagonist, who you play as, and then you know his brother uh, Sam Drake in um, uh, with Troy Baker, another very well known uh, voice actor in the gaming industry. Just phenomenal, phenomenal performances by the two. Really brings the characters to life. Also, the best AI I've ever seen in any game. And let me explain what I mean by that. The companion AI, you're constantly with a second character in this game. Um, you only play as one. You only play as Nathan Drake. There's a lot of action platforming, a lot of um, scaling, uh, cliff sides, rock climbing, swinging from ropes, a lot of Indiana Jones style that I suppose the rest of the Uncharted franchise was really known for. But you always have like this tag-along companion, whether it's uh, Sully um, or his wife or his brother. And... The AI is so smart. Um, they never get in the way of breaking your stealth while you're sneaking past enemies. Um, they actually call out enemy placements. If you're stuck at certain points in the game, the your companion characters will actually walk and talk and point out like the next place where you need to go to or give you a sort of hint at the puzzle. Also, I think it's phenomenal how they handle... Um, let's say you're getting into a vehicle, for example, and your companion's like super far away. You've left them far behind. The They're having a hard time catching up to you through the environment. You don't have to sit there and wait for them to get in. They do this smart little camera trick where they zoom in on you in the driver's seat and they show you uh, whoever you're you're playing with just jumping into the back seat. Um, it, it's just really, really, really smart design. Uh, stunning landscapes, level design, sound design. I can't say enough about it. Um, Gameplay wise, the cover shooting could be a little bit tighter um, and the stealth was a little bit frustrating for me. I often found myself very frustrated by getting through certain segments because there were sort of unfair vantage points that enemies, you know, kept surrounding myself in. And so I would just brute force my way through gunplay constantly. And you always knew where they were coming. Um, but the story, the visuals altogether, it's an excellent, excellent package. I love it. I actually touched the multiplayer for a little bit and... I don't think Uncharted is really known for its multiplayer, but it's serviceable. For me, it's sort of an extra. The game is excellent, well worth it uh, on its own through its single-player campaign, but the multiplayer is actually worth checking out. Uh, I had uh, quite a bit of fun with it. Oh, and the multiplayer, uh, just on a brief note on that, that multiplayer runs at 60 frames a second, and you notice it. Yeah. It is It is smooth. I wish all games ran at that frame rate. It, it is. It is. It, it stands out technically. Wow. Yeah. Um, I would, I, for me, I, I absolutely agree with you that Uncharted, uh, belongs in the game of the year conversation. Um, I think for me being a, uh, longtime fan of the, the series, um, for me, I think some of the story elements are a little cliche, uh, but, uh, I did think the gameplay was pretty good. Uh, they did make the, a lot of the like, uh, paths to climb up the sides of cliffs and stuff a lot more natural this time. The Uncharted games were kind of in that Assassin's Creed mold of like, well, the, the, they painted everything yellow, so that's where you should climb next. And <laughs> in, in, in Uncharted 4, it's a lot more natural. Yeah. Um, the only really unnatural part of that is actually the grappling hook. I think some of the like points where it asks you to like, hook the grappling hook onto are like, oh, come on, really? Like, you're this ancient ruin, and there just happens to be this, like, one hanging piece of wood. Like, 
but but it's a video game. I have to suspend my disbelief a little bit. Uh, the gameplay is very, very good. And um, I, I also think that it belongs in the conversation. There is a moment in the middle of that game that is absolutely worth talking about. We will bring it up in our game of the year discussion for that category. Uh, it's one of those like jaw dropping things that I like. I cannot believe that Naughty Dog included in that in that game. Uh, I, I think I know what you're talking about. It also appears uh, in the epilogue as well. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a, a dinner scene, let's say, that happens in the middle of the game um, that uh, is a callback to one of Naughty Dog's uh, classics. Um, and I think this game, to me, really speaks to Naughty Dog's technical excellence. Um, it reminds me a lot of The Last of Us, uh, kind of the Last of Us was like this excellent uh like end of the generation PS3 game that really made the most of that hardware. And for me, Uncharted 4 is like finally the game that we've waited to really like sell you on on a console. Uh, a really, really impressive looking. Yeah, there's not much more to say about it, but if you haven't played it yet, you've got to do so. It's it's highly, highly recommended. And it's even gotten a lot of perfect scores from a lot of different outlets too. So I know we were bashing reviews earlier, but Seriously, though, it's I highly, highly recommend this game. I would say the one major knock I have against it is how short it is. I was able to beat the game at about, I would say, 10 to 11 hours, and I didn't feel like I was playing very quickly or slowly. I was moving at a pretty normal pace, I thought. Um, and, and for me, the length could be a little bit longer, but I suppose if it was too long, then I would complain about it then. So maybe it was the perfect size, but it really felt like I was playing a movie. It was that kind of a, kind of a game, just phenomenal action happening all the time. Uh, very character rich. Just absolutely loved it. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Taylor, tell me quickly about this uh, Heroes of the Storm Machines of War event that's been uh, happening with that game. So Heroes of the Storm, their uh, last ranked season just ended. They've moved on to, I want to say it's season two at this point. I don't pay close attention to it because I'm not about ranked play when it comes to Blizzard games. I'm, I'm the same way in Overwatch. I don't really like to play those. I like to play a lot of quick play unranked modes. But this Machines of War event, what it, uh, it, it was just recently announced, and they're introducing two new characters, one who's already out, Alarak, who's a uh, Protoss uh, character from StarCraft. Uh, he's an assassin. From what I understand, he's pretty squishy, um, but potentially very powerful, high DPS. Um, and also Zarya, uh, a character from um, Overwatch. Not too sure about her playstyle yet, but this Machines of War event is pretty cool in a couple different ways. Number one, if you haven't gone back and played Heroes of the Storm lately, you probably should log in um, now, because if you log in now, you get a free hero. So you have your choice right at the gate between Anubarak, Thrall, and Tyrande. So they're permanently unlocked for you. You don't have to wait for them to appear in the free hero rotation. And if you own any of those, you, you can actually have more options, Nazebo, Sonya, or Uther. And if you own all of them, then instead you get 4,000 gold instead, which in my case, that's what happened. I actually haven't pumped a lot of money into Heroes of the Storm. Everything I've earned, bought heroes with skins, I've actually earned through uh, in-game gold. So it's it's pretty, pretty um, cool for me to get that small little bonus as a way of saying thanks for keep coming back to this game. But uh, the other major feature that they rolled out in this new Machines of War event is a brand new StarCraft II map, which... I've got to say is my new favorite map. It's really, really good. It's called Braxis Holdout. 
And essentially what you're doing is you're going through uh, sort of this Terran environment. Um, and the main objective in this, in order to push lanes, um, you know, every map has their own unique objectives, right? You're, you're, you're trying to defeat the enemy core. This is a typical MOBA-style game, while also defeating enemy heroes for more experience. Um, but in this one, you actually have to hold certain points on the map in order to recruit more Zerglings for you. Um, and then if you, if time runs out and you end up filling more of the meter than you, the enemy team do, does, you get a massive, massive Zerg rush coming towards the enemy's base, which is really awesome um, and can potentially be uh, very, very devastating if you're not actively working with your team very closely, coordinating, trying to get that for yourself. So it's very, very cool. And for me also, biased here because I love StarCraft and... The soundtrack for this map, the background music for this is excellent, of course. It's the Terran theme, so love listening to that in the background while I'm playing. Um, so, yeah, there's not much more to say about it, but I have to say, for me, Heroes of the Storm is a game I just keep getting back to. It's one of these games I love playing casually because I like listening to podcasts while I'm playing it. It's a game I can relax to, play one or two games right before I go to bed, and I, I just recommend it as a very beginner-friendly MOBA, so very cool event that they're having right now. I think uh, every gaming podcast uh, has this one weak link where somebody falls prey to a MOBA. Uh, (laughs) It's usually League of Legends or Dota, but in your case, it's Heroes of the Storm. That game (laughs) has its hooks in you deep. You don't stop talking about it. It's true. Uh, But but it's cool to see you excited about a game with MOBA-style mechanics. It seems like uh, a lot of people are kind of going after that genre. And uh, I think Blizzard has had a... uh, moderate success in Heroes of the Storm, um, especially when you compare it to, um, you know, its its rivals, which um, are a, a little more complex, but uh, also kind of less accessible for, for a lot of people. Uh, it's cool to, to see them really get behind this game. Um, Blizzard has a really impressive library now. When you launch Battle.net, it's Overwatch, Hearthstone, Heroes of the Storm, uh, World of Warcraft, Diablo 3, also StarCraft 2. Uh, it's a really impressive lineup. I think they're really making games that are really addictive for a certain kind of player. All right, it's time to wrap up the show. Ryan, let's finish this up. You ready for the bonus stage? Yeah, let's go for it. Blizzard was working on a point-and-click game called Warcraft Adventures Lord of the Clans back in the late 90s, but the project was canceled after just two years in development. We're talking about this because the game recently resurfaced when a user by the name of Rydor, located in Russia, posted a download link for the game on the internet a couple of days ago. The game allegedly tells the story of how the war chief Thrall came to power, setting up one of the major plot lines for World of Warcraft. The screenshots make it look like one of those Sierra-style point-and-click adventure games, but you know what? I want to see someone leak StarCraft Ghost. I've always been interested in that cancelled game. The modders of TecmoBowl.org released an update to Tecmo Super Bowl using all the current players and teams of the NFL to celebrate the 25th birthday of one of the greatest console sports games of all time. It's called Tecmo Super Bowl 2017, and it's playable now on any NES emulator. Finally, a sports game with a roster update that I don't have to pay for. Self-driving cars will use GTA 5 to learn how to drive. As MIT's Technology Review reports, the game GTA 5 is being used to train AI mainly to recognize objects from the game, cars, pedestrians, bicycles, buildings, roads, and other things that you might encounter in the real world using GTA 5 as a base model. 
from the article, quote, the researchers created a software layer that sits between the game and a computer's hardware, automatically classifying different objects in the road scenes shown in the game. You know what? I would think another really cool use case for GTA 5 would be to, like, recreate car accidents for court cases. That would be awesome if you, <laughs> you could use that as real-life evidence in court. That um, sounds like Rockstar waiting for another lawsuit. Yeah, what will they think of next? All right. Thanks for listening. That's it for this week's episode. If you liked our show, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. It would be a huge help. You can also listen to us on Google Play Music, TuneIn, Clamor, or our website, which is 1pvs2p.com, or search for us using your favorite podcast app. Our sources for this week's stories have been posted at the link in the show notes. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at 1pvs2p underscore podcast. If you have any comments, questions, tips, anything, send it our way. Email it to us, podcast at 1pvs2p.com. That's our email address. We might read it aloud on our next episode. As always, we want to thank Phonetic Hero for the use of his songs for our show, Coffee Stomp and Super Manly Brothers X. Both songs are part of the compilation project, Chip Tunes Equals Win. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next week. GG!